As we come to chapters 32 through 37, we are now introduced to actually a fourth individual who begins to give some insight and counsel to Job. He makes all of his comments, quite lengthy as they are, from verse uh, 1 of chapter 32. We're going to see him introduced, and from chapters 32 to 37, uh, this man Elihu, or Elihu, however you want to pronounce his name, uh, begins to speak, and he's the youngest among those uh, who communicate to Job. And we'll see a little bit of that, I think, manifested in some of his temperament and the spirit in which he speaks, uh, some of his youthfulness, and in some ways maybe a little bit of immaturity begins to reveal itself in some ways. And then, of course, as we get to chapter 38, uh, we really get into the uh, real uh, land of flowing with milk and honey because then God really begins to start to interject and get involved and communicate and speak and just really wonderful things at the last few chapters of the conclusion of the book of Job. But as we came to the end of chapter 33, we were told that the words of Job are ended. So Job just spent a good amount of time speaking again in his defense, trying to express his heart. He spent a little time praying as he himself is still processing all of this suffering and the difficulties that he's been enduring. And again, as we want to remind ourselves from the beginning of the book, Job has no awareness why he's suffering. There's no explanation given to him of what's transpired in this conversation between God and Satan, who God has, remember, allowed, in a sense, to bring attack against Job's life, which has brought about this suffering, the, uh, the, you know, the loss of all of his children, the loss of all of his possessions, the loss of respect, and then the loss of his health. I mean, just all the things that Job has been enduring for months. Remember, he's been in this season of prolonged suffering and and pain and anguish, and then dialoguing with his friends who've been trying to point out in his life what the source of the problem is, with all of them being completely unaware of what's going on in the supernatural dimension between Satan and God. But as we come to chapter 32 now, again, this last individual we meet, Elihu, and it says, So these three men ceased answering Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. The idea they're righteous in his own eyes is not righteous in the sense of, you know, completely innocent, but the idea is that Job saw himself uh, in clarity, understanding that he wasn't guilty of some specific sin. Again, understand, Job never was claiming to be sinless. Uh, Job understood that he was a man of flesh, just like all of us, and that he had shortcomings like everyone else. But their constant accusation that Job was suffering as a direct result of some specific sin or some undealt with or hidden sin in his life, and God was punishing him for that, was something that Job was just not willing to consent to in their argument regarding that. And Job continued to declare his innocence, that there was nothing he was aware of that he had done wrong and that he saw himself still as, as righteous in his own eyes. So finally it came to a point where his three friends decided to just cease from their arguing and their disputing. They recognized that this argument was going to get nowhere, uh, but now we're told in verse 2 that the wrath of Elihu, or Elihu, again, however you want to pronounce his name, the wrath of Elihu, son of Barakai, Kel, the Buzzite, of the family of Ram was aroused against Job. And his wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. 
also against his three friends. His wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet it condemned Job. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, that is, that they weren't going to speak any further in this dialogue, his wrath was aroused. Now, you take notice there four times the Holy Spirit indicates that Elihu is hot and bothered. He is angry. We're told a couple things about him in this passage here. One of the things that we are made known of is that throughout this conversation, he apparently to some degree was present. So he had heard all of the disputing that went on back and forth. He heard the things that Job declared as Job was trying to reason things out. He heard the things that, uh, you know, Bildad and Eliaphaz, you know, the things that Zophar, that they were saying, the different times when they would speak. He listened to all of their dialogue, their approaches, their different ideas, the ways they went back and forth. And it tells us in verse four that he had waited to speak because they were all years older than him. So he was honoring typical ancient custom which was to show respect for your elders and to honor patriarchs. And since he was the youngest among them, up to this point, he has kind of just been a silent bystander. He's been listening. He's been paying attention to what they've been saying. He's going to reference that. Look, I listened to you guys. I heard you out. Uh, so, But he's been sitting there being patient and quiet and waiting out of respect rather than interjecting prematurely. And he realizes, okay, it seems now that they're all done. Uh, it seems like they've exhausted what they're going to say, that the argument's kind of dying down. Now, I don't know about you, and there are a few things that Elihu does say that are accurate, correct, and I don't know if you want to call them helpful, call them helpful. It seems ultimately, uh, you know, kind of that what he says really is a lot of repetition to what's already been said. But maybe one of the indications of his youthfulness right away is that after 33 chapters of these men going back and forth, trying to come to an answer and debating and dialoguing and whatever you want to call it, they were doing over the suffering of Job, and they finally exhausted themselves verbally, maybe he might have been best to just leave it well enough alone. And, and, and instead of saying, okay, maybe I should share my input for another six chapters and make the book of Job longer for all of us who now read it and try and glean something out of it. Uh, the book of Job maybe could have been a little bit shorter. Maybe he would have been well enough to just say, you know, I do have some ideas, but if there's really not something that's going to be helpful, maybe I shouldn't have spoken. Because you notice, even when he does communicate, what's told to us here in verses one down through verse five, four times, it has it in my translation anyway, the word wrath. Now, that's a strong indication of anger. The idea is there's, he is speaking because in his spirit, he's very agitated. He's frustrated. He's angry. He doesn't agree with some of the things that have been said. And in some ways, he's angry, it says, at Job as well as his friends. It says that he's aroused in wrath towards Job because Job was justifying himself rather than God. And the idea there is that Job was, in a sense, declaring his innocence, but in the midst of declaring his innocence and trying to refute with his friends, 
Job was starting to question God even, as if somehow God wasn't dealing with him fairly and that he couldn't understand you know, what I know about God. This doesn't seem to make sense. And it's almost in Elihu's mind, he was feeling like, Job, how dare you declare your innocence and somehow convey God in a negative light? And, and, and so, look, in, in his righteous zeal, wanting to be defensive of God, which is you know, a, a good thing in its own right, he began to kind of boil over in anger and frustration. And in his youthful zeal, it was bothering him. How dare anybody question God? And if they're going to question God, then I'm going to come to God's defense and I'm going to fight for God. And he does say some things, as I said, that are accurate to some degree. But the, the, the sad thing is that we're very clearly told from the start that he's saying things, if you would, kind of in a wrong spirit. The temperament whereby he's going about it is there's kind of a little bit of a self-righteous tone, no doubt. He's speaking out of anger and frustration. And rather than trying to just kind of be helpful and peaceable in his communication, it seems that he's kind of got this almost kind of this youthful type, uh, which can be a little bit of an arrogancy sometimes of, well, I guess I need to put all you old guys in your place. Uh, and apparently you can't figure it out and you're getting off track. And so, you know, with my new revelations and my deep knowledge of God, I guess I got to kind of set you guys straight a little bit. And that kind of seems to be where Elihu comes from. And again, some of what he says is very insightful. He's a very intelligent young man. I mean, you can't take that away from him. I mean, as far as his thinking capacity, as far as a good working knowledge of things, I mean, he, he's a sharp guy. I mean, he communicates in an unceasing way for chapters and chapters, and many things he says are accurate about God. So you can't take away his, you know, the knowledge that he has and some of the things that he says. A lot of what he says, he's just repackaging what was already said, though. Uh, and he's now saying in a way whereby in his frustration, he almost kind of feels like that he needs to correct and rebuke Job and the friends because it says he's angry at Job, as well as verse 3 says... Against his three friends, the wrath was also aroused because they found no answer. In other words, why can't you come up with the right answers? How have you not been able to close the case with your arguments on Job yet? It says that he's aroused against them because they had not yet condemned Job. Look, I mean, how, how many times do you guys need the opportunity to give speeches and you still haven't accurately condemned this guy? I mean, what, what, what's the matter with you? Aren't you able to kind of put the nail in the coffin? The idea is like, you know, I've watched you old men do it, but it doesn't seem like you can get the job done. So I gave you your shot, but now this is my time. And so now he speaks up. But again, in his anger, he waited. But now it says, verse five, when he saw there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, that there was nothing more to say. Again, the fourth time we're told his wrath was aroused. So again, that's the spirit that he's coming from. And I think it's a good reminder to us. Sometimes we can say the right things, but if they're said in the wrong spirit, that can really sometimes diminish the impact. Uh, and not only can it diminish the impact, sometimes it can actually come across in a more unproductive way just because, again, we're being sharp in our tone or we kind of sound condescending and again, the, these are the mistakes sometimes, and let me just be fair to say, for all of us, I think the older that we get, the more we kind of mellow out a little bit. And, and one of the things that comes with age is, you know, you kind of get a little more wind knocked out of your sails. God kind of tempers you a little bit. 
And whether it's about spiritual things just in conversation or whether it's, you know, offering insight or instruction about anything, you ever notice that kind of the older people get, they kind of speak more efficiently and they don't quite sound as condescending in the way that they do say things sometimes because that tends to be a mistake of youthful immaturity where where people out of kind of angst and frustration just feel that they need to share their thoughts. He's going to say later in this chapter, I have to speak because I need some relief. The idea is like, I've got to say something. Uh, And sometimes we learn that saying the right thing but going about it the wrong way can be just as unhelpful sometimes as it is beneficial. And I think this is part of what we do learn, if nothing else, from Elihu. Again, he's speaking, but speaking from a place of great anger. And remember that as you're kind of hearing him going through this. He says in verse 6, or Elihu, the son of Berechiah, we're told, now speaks up and says, I am young in years. I admit that I'm youthful, and you are very old. Now, that's not a nice way to start. I'm young, and you're all very old. Well, you're not going to win friends and influence people. (laughs) You kind of want to soften the ground there if you're going to speak to those who are older than you. That probably shows you right there as he's right out of the gate. uh, He's just speaking uh, before he's thinking. And again, always remember that when you speak to people, you, you want to connect with people. So you want to be careful how you communicate. You don't want to turn off listeners before you even get there, especially if you're speaking to someone who's older than you, whatever age you are. And so he says, I'm young. You're very old. Therefore, I was afraid, he says, and I dared not declare my opinion. Boy, that's an important word when we talk, isn't it? My opinion. I dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak. And that's true. That was wise of him. He showed respect culturally as they did. And a multitude of years should teach wisdom. In other words, those who have more years, who've multiplied their years, they should be the ones teaching wisdom. He's accurate in that. He said, look, I was waiting because the multitude of years that you have of life experience and knowing God in some way, that should be what allows you to teach wisdom to those who are younger. And certainly the more we multiply years, the more we should be able to teach wisdom from the years of experience that we gain. But then he goes on to say, verse 8, 9, but there is a spirit in a man and the breath of the almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. So he says, look, your multitude of years should be teaching to all of us wisdom. But he says, I know enough to understand, he says, that true wisdom doesn't always come just from the multiplication of years. To some degree, natural wisdom comes. You know, the longer you live, the more times you've gone around the block, the more, you know, you've logged in your journey. I mean, life does, to some degree, allow us to gain some wisdom. But the greatest wisdom comes ultimately from the rock of ages, from the eternal God, who can give to us wisdom supernaturally. And that doesn't necessarily come with age chronologically. And this is what Elihu is pointing out here. He says, it's the breath of the almighty God who breathes into our lives, the breath of God, that is his spirit ministering into our spirit, the spirit of man, which gives a person understanding. So he's saying God can give to people understanding by his spirit that they may not have acquired naturally just by living through general life experience. And boy, that is a wonderful privilege of knowing God and walking with God is, you know, his spirit can bear witness with our spirit, as the New Testament says. And one of the ways that can happen 
is the very Spirit of God can, can impart wisdom to us in our human spirit and give us understanding through the Word of God and just through the wisdom that comes from God's Spirit and knowing Him and walking with Him. And Elihu's saying, look, I understand certain things, he says, because the Almighty has given to me a degree of wisdom. Uh, again, wisdom comes from God. And then he says, verse 9, and great men, those who are older and good, great men, he says, they're not always wise. Well, that is true. Age doesn't guarantee wisdom. Again, there are some who are uh, in their latter years, and yet they have still, throughout their whole life, never kind of attained to a place where they learned how to live out their life wisely. There are people who are senior citizens that sadly are still living very foolish lifestyles, self-destructive lifestyles that have harmed themselves, that have harmed people all throughout their journey of, you know, 60, 70 years, and they're still living foolishly in their patterns or their habits or the way that they conduct themselves. So again, age isn't a guarantee of wisdom. What the Bible teaches to us, it can bring wisdom, but he says great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. So he says, I want to speak because I believe God has given to me a degree of wisdom and I want to share it. So verse 10, he says, therefore, I say, listen to me and I will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. So he says, look, I think I've earned some airtime. He says, I listened to you guys. I I, I patiently listen to your different reasonings while you were trying to search out what was the right thing to say to give an answer to these things. So he's saying, look, I paid close attention to you, verse 12, and surely not one of you convinced Job. You spent a lot of time talking, but none of you have convinced him yet. He's still justifying himself and, and he still believes he's right in his own eyes and won't agree with your reasonings towards him that he's suffering because of some unknown or undealt with sin. He says, lest you say we have found wisdom, God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. So he says, apparently you, as long as I've listened, have never been able to come to a conclusion on this matter. You haven't been able to resolve the situation. You haven't been able to give a good answer to Job. He says, in fact, you've kind of just come to a place where your words have ceased and you say, look, we understand our wisdom and, and God's going to have to just vanquish Job. That is, we just, look, God's going to have to just deal with Job. We try to deal with him. He doesn't want to listen. And, and he says, so therefore, verse 15, they are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. The idea is they have nothing more to say. They don't know what else to say. And I have waited because they did not speak because they stood still and answered no more. I will also answer my part. I too will declare my opinion. Well, he's told us that three times now. He's going to give us his opinion, right? I'm going to tell you my opinion. Then verse 18, look at, look at these descriptive kind of you know, poetic language. For I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. I'm, I'm compelled, he says. I got some things that I think I should say because I got an opinion on the matter. <laughs> so he says, I am full of words. The spirit within me is compelling me to speak. Indeed, he describes, my belly is like wine that has no vent. The idea is like wine within the wineskins. That is, it you know, uh, ferments and goes through the process and the gases begin to 
come forth from it. You have to have a vent on the wineskins to allow those gases to come forth. If not, he says, it's like wineskins with no vent that they'll burst just like brand new wineskins. Verse 20, I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. So he says, if I don't speak my mind, I'm going to burst. Have you ever felt like that before? I mean, look, whether you were young or wherever you're at or when you get angry, sometimes you just feel like that. I just you're holding all this stuff in and you're just like, I just got to get this off my chest. I've, that's it. I have got to give you a piece of my mind, which is usually not a good idea because you probably need as much of your mind as you have. And sometimes we want to give a piece of our mind away and it doesn't always end up in a, a very good result. But he says, look, I am full of words. I have got to speak. It's interesting how he describes verse 20. He says, I will speak to find relief. I must open my lips and answer. It almost sounds like that he's more concerned about just saying what he needs to get off his chest than he really is concerned whether or not it's actually going to be helpful. Because you notice he acknowledges in his own words how compelled he is to have to speak like he's going to explode. But he says, I will speak that I may find relief. Hold on a minute here. Aren't we trying to find relief for Job? Isn't Job the one that's suffering and in pain and been going through all these difficulties for months on end? What do you need relief for? Apparently at this season of time, Elihu is a young man and he's healthy and he's not dealing with pain and difficulty. He's being completely insensitive to the sufferings of Job. And again, this is, I think, another indication of kind of that angst and the temperament being wrong in him that he's mainly concerned about finding relief for his own self and and needing to answer because he just can't control himself he's got to say something you know we, we i call this uh nervous talk you know and some people that's that's a challenge sometimes people they, they talk and it's just nervous talk it's like in a given situation they have to say something or they just always have to say something and it's almost like silence just makes them uneasy. So they just, sometimes they just blurt out and they say things. And the reality is sometimes when we do that, that nervous talk thing can really end up kind of being very detrimental. And here he says, I've got to speak. I've got to say something. Well, maybe some of that was a struggle he should have dealt with in his own heart because he didn't bring relief to Job. We'll see at the end of these chapters, he really doesn't give much more relief than anyone else. And Job was the one that was truly suffering. He says, verse 21, let me not, I pray, <clears throat> excuse me, show partiality to anyone. He says, look, I, I, I pray. I don't, I don't want to show partiality. I don't want to show partiality to you guys or to Job, nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. So there's wisdom in that. He says, you know, when I speak, I don't want to be partial. I want to be honest. And I think whenever we do speak, uh, th that shows a level of wisdom there that we're not trying to flatter someone or just say things to win them over that we're not showing partiality when we communicate and he says i don't want to show partiality to anyone god shows partiality to no man the bible tells us that and certainly we should learn to grow in that area as well and that's why especially when we're engaged in situations like this the book of proverbs says he who answers a matter before he hears it it's a folly and a shame to him and the book of Proverbs also tells us that, you know, when someone comes and communicates a matter, they seem right until their neighbor comes and cross-examines them. And that's the idea there, is that we should always be careful before we interject, like Elihu does here, our opinion, 
that we make sure that we're not being partial to one side or the other, that we've got the full story and, and, and to kind of guard ourselves against that because we can very easily become inclined to show partiality. And Elihu here uh, does show some degree of wisdom in saying, I pray that I won't show partiality when I speak the things that are on my heart and mind. Verse 31 of chapter 33, he says, But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. In other words, Job, hear me out here. Make sure you listen to all my words. And Job probably had no idea how long it was going to take for all his words to get out. But he says, please, Job, listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth. My tongue speaks in my mouth. Well, that's insightful. You open your mouth and your tongue speaks in your mouth. Well, that's science, I guess. My words come from my upright heart and my lips utter pure knowledge. In other words, Job, my, my heart uh, is not a miss. I don't have some impure motive. I, I have a, a pure motive. And he says, and my lips are about to utter pure knowledge. Pure knowledge, I'm going to give you some pure knowledge. Pay attention. The spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. Again, that's theologically accurate. That's Genesis chapter two stuff right there. God created Adam and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So uh, he's on track there as he starts to give some of his uh, theological basis. You know, God's created me. He's breathed life into me. So he says, if you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. Well, boy, we went from God created me to God created me to be your spokesman. Job, God created me for this day, he's saying. Ultimately, God knew that you'd need a spokesman. And it seems that's what God has brought me into your life for. And, you know, sometimes that can kind of become the the temperament and the spirit of certain people is, you know, the Lord told me to tell you or the Lord gave me this to share with you. And, you know, I mean, you know, honestly, I have to very candidly say over the years, you know, I've had people say those kind of things in my life. Maybe perhaps you have as well, where, you know, the Lord told me to tell you um, whenever someone says that to me, it almost kind of instantly makes me kind of put my guard up a little bit and be a little bit more, uh, reserve just because the reality is I have experienced before when God has used people to speak into my life. And when God has spoken into my life by other people, it's like, you know, that convicting power of like, oh, you know, like, man, that was it's just, wow. It's just like, it just, you're cut to the heart. Like Acts chapter two says, when Peter preached, this is the people were cut to the heart. And, and we've all experienced that. And so my point being is, I don't need somebody to tell me they're speaking a word from the Lord. If you got something to say, just say it. You don't got to wax spiritual on me and get hyper spiritual. The Lord told me, God revealed to me. And look, if the Lord told you something, just tell me, just, just speak. And if it's from God, I'll, I'll experience it. I'll know it's from the Lord. And so sometimes I think, you know, the error that we can almost, and again, I'm not saying we're always doing it to try and, you know, puff ourselves up or act spiritual, but I just would say, be careful, because sometimes when we do that, it almost seems like this super spiritual approach that we try and bring to a situation, and sometimes we can almost make somebody get a little bit uneasy or almost be a little bit defensive, because they begin to kind of feel like, well, look, why is God got to tell you something to tell me? 
And sometimes God does do that. God does speak prophetically through other people, and we don't want to diminish that. But here, right away, truly, Job, I'm your spokesman before God. God's made me your spokesman. And he says, and I also have been formed out of the clay. I have the same potter over my life as yours. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. Job, I'm not looking to terrify you. Nothing heavy. Well, that's kind of an understatement there because he's going to say quite a bit of heavy things. He says, verse 8, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sounds of your words. So I've listened to you again, he says. He keeps kind of coming back to this. I've had to listen to you. Now it's your turn to show due respect and listen to me, saying, this is what I've heard you say, Job. I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasion against me, saying that Job was saying, but yet God is finding occasion, though I'm innocent, to count me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. The idea is treating me like a, like a prisoner and watches all my paths. That is scrutinizing in kind of a harsh way. Now, certainly he was hearing some of what Job was saying. And to some degree, the connotation of what he describes there is true, that Job was trying to declare his innocence. But Job was not declaring that he was pure, innocent, and without no transgression at all in his life, and that there was no iniquity in his life. Job wasn't saying, look, I am a sinless man. I'm a faultless man. Why would God treat me like this? Job was simply saying, I'm not guilty of some specific known sin in my life, which is the result now of my suffering being brought into my life. That's all Job was saying. And this to some degree kind of shows that one of the mistakes that Elihu was making was he was listening, but he wasn't really listening. I mean, he was hearing kind of what Job was saying, but he wasn't paying attention to the heart behind what Job was trying to communicate. And so unfortunately, we're going to see this a couple of times, he kind of misconstrued what Job was communicating and feeling and thinking and was kind of reading into things a little bit almost as if Job was declaring that he was a sinless man, and that bothered him. Nobody's sinless. Well, that's theologically accurate. But again, in his zeal, that really angered him. And unfortunately, that really wasn't what Job was saying, but he felt as if that's what Job was kind of indicating and that God was punishing him. And so he becomes upset about this. That's why verse 12, again, he kind of almost begins to want to correct Job. Now, this is kind of the corrective part. Look, in this, he says, you are not righteous. That is, you're not right. How dare you accuse God of mistreatment towards you as a sinful man? How, how dare you do that, he says. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Indeed, he is. Why do you contend with him? Why are you challenging God, he says? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. In other words, God doesn't have to give account for anything that he says. If God says it, He's allowed to say it. He's God. So he's saying, how dare you challenge God? For God, now he begins to talk about how God speaks in different ways. He says, verse 14, for God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. And the idea there is God has various ways whereby he may communicate when he wants to get something said. He says God can speak in one way or he can speak in another way. God's not limited. There are various ways that God is able to communicate. And he says the problem isn't on God's communicating. The problem isn't on God's end to speak. He says the problem is, is that people aren't listening to what God's saying. 
And he's kind of indicating that when he says there, yet man does not perceive it. Sometimes, and this is true, Elihu is right in this, that God is speaking and we're just missing what God's saying. You know, usually the times in our life when there's something God's trying to say to us, God is clearly trying to get through the message that he's trying to get through. And he'll even use multiple ways to do it. Usually the problem is on our end is that we're not perceiving what God's trying to say to us, whether it's because we're just not paying attention, whether it's because in our pride or our selfishness, we just really don't want to hear it or we don't want to accept it or we don't want to admit it. Or we're just kind of too much enjoying maybe our sin or our wrong behavior. And we're kind of like, la, 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 la. and we're just trying to do everything we can to make as much noise as possible to kind of keep our own conscience unsensitive to the fact that God is trying to really say something to us in our lives. And so he says, look, this seems to be the problem, Job. It's not that God's not speaking. He's saying you're not perceiving what God's saying. Now, again, this is where he's wrong. He's misapplying this to Job. He's saying, God's trying to speak to you. The problem is, Job, you're just not willing to listen. And sadly, that's a, that's a poor accusation. That wasn't the case. Again, here's that point again. The truth is correct, but there's a misapplication of the truth that's going on. And he's misapplying this to Job as if somehow Job didn't want to perceive or hear what God was trying to say. And then he describes some ways that God does speak. He says, verse 15, in a dream, God can speak. In a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds. So again, God is able to speak through the word of God. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter one and other places that God can speak through creation. Uh, you know, the invisible attributes of God are, are seen in, in creation. God can speak prophetically through the, the word of one of his servants. He puts a word in their mouth to communicate and God can speak as well to us through dreams through visions that is god can give a supernatural revelation through a dream or through some vision which is basically the same thing as a dream only you're not sleeping god allows you to have a vision to see something so he's saying look god's not limited in his ability to speak he can do it in many ways and he as well verse 16 can even open the ears of men and seals their instruction that is to make sure their ears are open and they hear verse 17 in order to turn man from his deed the idea is from his error from his path of doing wrong and conceal pride from man, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing, being destroyed or ruined by the sword, by the sword of destruction. So verse 17 and 18, he kind of indicates there some reasons that God speaks. He says, these are some of the reasons that God, God does try and speak to us. Sometimes God is speaking to turn man from his deed, from the error of his wrongdoings. Sometimes God is trying to speak to us to say abort mission. Sometimes God's saying, look, you are on the wrong path. Take the exit ramp. Sometimes God is saying to us, you are headed in the wrong direction. You need to turn around because that's what repentance is. Not turn partly. Repentance is 180 degrees. You're going north. God says 180 degrees. Turn around and go south. Walk away from that detach from it, turn away from it. Don't just temporarily, oh, I'll take a break from it. No, God says, cut the strings, turn around, go the complete opposite direction. And sometimes God's speaking to us because we need to turn from some wrongdoing. Other times God speaks to us. He says, my translation says to conceal pride from man. The word conceal speaks of, you know, holding something back. That is to hold us back from pride. 
And sometimes God will speak very strongly to us to protect us from pride in our lives. Sometimes the word of God comes to our heart in a very strong way to humble us. You ever had that happen before? Where God just kind of breaks the hardness of your heart and holds back your pride from being the destructive thing in your life. He also speaks out in verse 18 that God at times speaks to us to preserve us from, again, our soul going to the pit and from perishing in our lives. That is our lives just being destroyed circumstantially as well, of course, spiritually and eternally. Sometimes God will speak to us in powerful ways to spare us from our own self-destructive paths, whether it's in how we're living or even, of course, ultimately the condition of our soul that we don't end up in the pit of hell. Verse 19, he mentions now another way that God speaks. He says, man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones so that his life abhors bread, his soul succulent food, his flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out which once were not seen. Boy, you can tell you're really sickly and losing weight when you start to see the bones through the skin. Yes, his soul draws near to the pit and his life to the executioner. So verse 19 through 22, he's speaking of how at times God will communicate things to us even through pain. Even through hardship, God can use pain, difficulty, and hardship that we experience as one of the clear ways that he communicates things to us in our life. You know, who has not gone through a time of difficulty and in the midst of those difficult times or the pain or the suffering, you heard the voice of God so clearly in ways maybe like you never heard it before. God reveals things to you in your suffering. God shows you things in the midst of hardship. You know, sometimes pain is like the megaphone of God, they say. And when you're going through a really hard time, it's amazing how, you know, God gets your attention and your heart is very tender. And sometimes we really hear things from God that we would never hear in the good and the easy seasons of our life. And a lot of times it is in those painful experiences that God really breaks through and says things to us that we need to hear. And, and God, again, can use pain to help us in our lives. That's what Paul ultimately referred to in the book of Second Corinthians, where Paul says there in chapter 12 that a messenger of Satan and a thorn in the flesh was given to him to buffet him, just to, to keep Paul in a place of humility because God was doing such wonderful things so that Paul wouldn't become puffed up in pride. Verse 23, he says, And if there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. For I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. And he shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy for he restores man to his righteousness. Now, as he begins to say these things here in verse 23 to 26, if I can, just to draw your attention briefly, I mean, take notice again, as we've seen throughout the word of God, how at times how the Holy Spirit uses things that are communicated that are so reflective of the person of Christ. I mean, here in verses 23 to 26, you really have many beautiful pictures of Jesus. If there's a messenger or a mediator who could show man his uprightness, is not Jesus the ultimate messenger of God? Hebrews 1 says, you know, again, I believe this is old King James. I apologize. I've memorized verses in different translations. You know, it's sundry times and in sundry ways. You know, in diverse ways, God has spoken to mankind. But in the last days, he's spoken to us through his 
son. That is the greatest message God has ever given to humanity is the giving of Jesus. It was the greatest message God ever gave. The clearest thing that God wants us to see and hear is what he has done through his son. And Jesus indeed is our mediator who also as man and God simultaneously shows us his uprightness because Jesus lived the sinless upright life that we could never live. But Jesus as our mediator, one meter between God and man shows us, listen, yes, you're not righteous, but here's the good news. Let me show you my righteousness, my uprightness. I'm the standard. You'll never meet it, but I'm the standard of sinlessness and righteousness. And I have satisfied the righteous requirement of the law on your behalf. And as your mediator, I have done this for you, being the God man, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And therefore, verse 24, Jesus is able to be gracious to us because of what he has done for us. He is able to deliver us, verse 24, from going down to the pit because he can say to the father, I have found a ransom for these sinful people. Father, I found a ransom my life can be the ransom payment so that they don't have to go down to the pit and can be spared. And when we experience the salvation of Jesus, the wonderful result is exactly what's described in verses 25 and 26. His flesh shall become like a young child. The idea is, again, the picture there is of a young child, new life. And when we come to Christ, isn't that what we get? A new life. He shall return to the days of his youth when you get saved. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. And what happens in salvation, you return. It's like to the days of your youth. The idea there is is a, a restoration of a second chance. And boy, isn't that the most wonderful thing about being able to come to Jesus? You get a second chance. It's like you get your youth all over again in a different way. I know it doesn't happen physically and, you know, biologically, but, you know, your youth is renewed like the eagles in the sense that God says, look, I'm going to give you a second chance. You're going to get a chance to live life all over again now, a clean slate, the opportunity to live a brand new life like a child all over again before God. And you can pray to God and he'll delight in you and you'll be able to see his face with joy for he restores to man, notice, his righteousness. God gives to us back the righteousness that was lost in the garden through the righteousness of Jesus. Verse 27, then he looks at men and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. And boy, that's always the truth. Whenever we sin and we pervert what's right, never any profit in that. There's temporary pleasure, but there's nothing profitable about living in sin, it's always destructive and brings no benefit. It always sends us backward rather than forward. But he will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. And that's exactly who Jesus is, the light of the world. Verse 29, behold, God works all these things, he says, twice in fact and three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Again, enlightened with the light of life. That's what God wants to do for us. And again, the greatest way that God has done that is through Jesus because Jesus declared himself of himself. I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
That is, as we follow Jesus Christ, he gives us the light of life. That is the light of how to live life so that we can avoid wandering around in the darkness because nothing beneficial comes whenever I detach from the Lord and I walk in my own darkness. What happens? You walk in the dark, you stumble constantly, you stub your toe on things, you break things, you trip, you get hurt, right? It's just dangerous to walk in the dark. And a lot of times all that needs to happen is we need to start following Jesus a little closer. And we think, oh, we got to do this. We got to do this. No, Jesus said, just follow me. I'm the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness because I bring about the light of life. And he gives us light, how to live our lives. And here, what a beautiful statement that not only are we spared from the pit, but he says, God has worked in a way where my will may be enlightened with the light of life. He says to Job, verse 31, give ear, Job, listen to me, hold your peace and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Never mind. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Hold your peace, and I will teach you wisdom. <laughs> I mean, you kind of get the connotation of, of where he's coming from. He says, Job, if you got something to say, say it. Okay, never mind. I have a few more things I'd like to tell you about. I mean, he's like, he doesn't give, you wonder if Job was like, like ready to say something, and right away he's you know, back into speaking again. He says, hold your peace, and, and I'll teach you wisdom. And Elihu further answered, chapter 34, hear my words, you wise men. So he's now talking to the friends. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. I like the language there. Again, very interestingly, he speaks in a very insightful way. Again, it shows you this young man has knowledge. He's very eloquent in his speech he paints word pictures he said as the he says the ear tests words as the palate tastes food what interesting in the same way that your palate tastes food and you can as you taste food oh that's that is bad that's spoiled man that's oh and as soon as you taste that oh that's spoiled throw it out it's rotten as compared to man that is delicious and so i'm going to chew that up and swallow it because he says, look, well, in the same way, God has given the ability for us through our ears to discern what's good and should be digested spiritually and morally and what's rotten and no good. So he says, in the same way that our palate can taste and distinguish food, he says, our ear can test words. That as we listen to things, we're able to use discernment. And he says that we should choose justice for ourselves and know among ourselves what is good. The idea there is using discernment, not just listening to anything, but paying attention and using discernment to what we hear when things are spoken to us. It reminds me of what is said in First Thessalonians chapter 5, where there it says to us, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, and hold fast to what is good. So again, the Bible says that we shouldn't quench the spirit of God. Again, we, we want to be careful that, again, the word quench there is like taking a garden hose and, you know, if you kink your garden hose, if you ever try to use your garden hose and it's not coming out, what does it matter with the water pressure here? And you look behind you and you realize the hose has been kinked. And he says, look, 
don't do that. Don't do anything that would quench the ministry of God's spirit. God's spirit is good and powerful. So we don't want to quench the spirit. And he says, and don't despise prophecies. That is, don't become someone who maybe because of one experience in your life, or maybe even a few experiences, or maybe some people who have said some things, quote unquote, in the name of the Lord, that were error or wrong or turns you off, that you then start despising, looking down on a prophetic word from the Lord. The idea is, is that, look, I don't trust any of that stuff anymore. I'm done with this. I don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. People get too weird with the gifts of the Spirit. And so we start despising all those things. And we kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater, and all of a sudden we get all weirded out, and we start despising anything that has to do with the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, look, don't do that. He says, just test all things and hold fast to what's good. Just like you don't put something rotten in your mouth and chew on it and realize it's rotten and swallow it, right? You would just, you'd spit it out. That's rotten, and I'm not going to finish chewing that, and I'm not going to... I'm not going to swallow it, certainly, and digest it and put it into my system. Well, he says, look, in the same way, with the hearing of your ear. As the palate tastes food, the ear discerns words. And he says, we simply need to know among ourselves what is good and choose that. So when something is presented or done uh, to be of the Lord, you know, we listen to it, we consider it, but we make a distinguishment. Hey, is that of the Lord? Does that line up with the word of God? Does that line up with the nature of of Scripture and the nature of who God is and his revelation and his word? And if it does, then okay, that seems good and of the Lord and of God. And and I'm willing to finish chewing that up and digest it and, and, and receive it from the Lord. But if it's not, we have the freedom and discernment to say, you know what, I'm not going to chew on that any further. I'm certainly not going to swallow that because I just I don't think that's of the Lord. And that's just using great wisdom whenever we're being open to the things of the Spirit. And again, even as these men spoke here, some of what they said was accurate, right? But other stuff that they said wasn't worth really chewing on or certainly wasn't worth swallowing. It would have done more harm than good. And so we need to use that same discernment in each and every one of our lives.